Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company, all right? We're a movement of everyday folks like you and me who are letting beauty break through the noise so it can transform our culture from the inside out. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm so pumped you're here. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the month of September. I mean, I think that means the summer is definitely slowing down, landing the plane. We've obviously got Labor Day this weekend, which is super exciting. Who doesn't love Labor Day? But you know what? It does kind of mark the end of a great time of the year. And I don't really know how this time of the year has felt for you guys. It's been a really strange six months. We all know that. And one of my favorite things to do around Love Good is to... uh, Ask people who are way smarter than me what they think about these times that we're living through. And Dr. Ryan Hanning, as you can imagine, our guest today, our regular contributor, always has really brilliant insights to offer. In fact, today we talk about politics and specifically how to navigate political debate, political conversation amongst family and friends, people we really care about, people who we want a relationship with but may disagree on, right? We talk about how rhetoric is is really only true, it's only a true art when it leads to truth. So what, what is the craft, right, of conveying truth while you know, not hijacking people's humanity to not just fall into sophistry or, or manipulation. Anyways, as always, Dr. Ryan Hanning kind of blows my mind. He's obviously got a PhD in theology. He's also a bit of a philosophical genius. And today we dive into Plato, okay? That's way above my pay grade. I don't know if it's above yours, but we dig in today and offer some really practical insights about how all of us can engage in political discourse, political debate with people that we love without ruining those relationships and really fighting for the truth and arriving at the truth together. All right, kick back and enjoy this beautiful song from our Firesides, Volumes 1, as always available exclusively at lovegoodculture.com slash free. And I'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Ryan Hanning. And he's from somewhere east of Eden Where only angels tread And every day he's more a feeling Just an ache that never ends So I know that this is hopeless Cause I don't even know who you are Every hole I fill with stars But they shatter the dark Cool. So we'll just jump in. Yeah, let's do it. Oh my gosh, this is going to be read. probably September. Oh my gosh. So you don't even know. Like you know, at this point, it could be that it like could be a Trump is on the ventilator, Biden's on the ventilator, and neither are willing to give up. Like that's. You know I mean, like it could be that bad. It could be literally like just something insane. I mean, who knows at this point? You know? Which is the perfect way to begin this conversation on the Love Good Podcast because Ryan, we're recording this excellent. Uh, let's do a it. couple months before it's even live. So uh, imagine that scenario. We have no idea 
what even the state of affairs are in the United States of America. We do love this country, you know, home of the brave, land of the free. But it is a difficult thing to know how to engage politically, especially every four years when everything just sort of breaks loose and yep. it gets really overwhelming. And also we all just start saying and doing things that we would never say or do in a non-election yeah, year. Election year turns everyone into an expert, oh which is really odd. Like, you know, I mean, and I find this in myself, like all of a sudden I'm talking like free trade agreements with a friend of mine <laughs> who's an economist from Vanderbilt. And I'm like, wait, I, you know, I, I'm just going to stop because obviously I know nothing of what I'm talking about. <sighs> yeah. You know, talking about politics is is something that unfortunately used to be part and parcel of family and friend conversations, right? Mm. Yeah, this was, in fact, most of our political ideas were formed within the crucible of the dialogue that would happen with friends and family. Wow, yeah. And, and now it seems it's the case as if, you know, politics is the one thing you don't talk about. And, and so when we're forced to talk about it, you know, this, during these election cycles, it can become really embittered. But we're not alone. This has been this has been the case for a long time. Yeah. Um, in any in any democracy, as it should be, where there's a free expression of ideas, we should hash this stuff out. Mm. And so I'm all for hashing it out. I'm all for entering into tough conversations. I am not for the vitriol. Yeah. I'm not for the demonizing of other people. Mm. And yet that seems to be where people like immediately enter into. That's what dominates our feeds, our airwaves. And I suppose what I need to be reminded of is what we closed with about a month ago, Ryan, which is not to exaggerate the novelty of our situation. In the words of C.S. Lewis, how easy it is for someone like me to finally believe for the first time it's true, this is the most consequential election in my lifetime or in American history. And you know what? They say that every four years. Yeah. And there's always a bit of a crisis unfolding, but this does feel unique. It, yeah, I'll say it definitely feels unique for this this generation. But, you know, in truth, we're a young nation. And if you if you go back, every election had some major, major opportunities for, for rechanging or redressing or steering the, the future of the, of the country. So, but, you know, we had, we had elections in the past where, you know, vice presidential candidates killed each other in duels. Tell me, and so, tell me more. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's always been this level of, of certain level of vitriol because I think the calculus a lot of times in politics is that you want to persuade people to your position. Mm. And, you know, and with the exception maybe of Lincoln, who, you know, Lincoln could get up. He was a great orator. He would get up and like, you know, we hear the Gettysburg Address. We hear like a small portion of it. He would get up and speak for like seven or eight hours. And not read off a teleprompter. And not read off a teleprompter, <laughs> right? He would just, he, and he was just like, you know, and, and he went, he, there was no flourishment to what he said. He would just say it, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, and, and there are others like that of that same time period because people would listen. Yeah. People would recognize if I'm going to really understand your position on important issues that are going to affect my life. And if I'm, if I'm willing to be upset about it, yeah, then I ought to be willing to spend an hour to listen to your position. That's right. And we don't take that position anymore. So I think a lot of times politicians just make the simple calculus that they know it's easier to get somebody to agree with them if they just go for the low blow, if they just go for, you know, the easy 144 character, um, mm. if they go for the easy attack ad. And it's sad because it tells us nothing about the substance of the person. Mm. And you know, so it's, the way I talk about it is that it's a very poor way to define yourself by telling other people what you're not. Mm. Because it, it tells them very little, in yeah. fact, too little. Mm. And what happens in so many times in these, these election cycles is that even we are guilty of this, is that we take the position to tell people you know, what we're not or what we disagree with, rather than advancing the platform that we think is best for full human flourishing, right. which, should be the, which is the goal of politics. Mm. So you know, when, when I frame this question, 
how do you talk politics or family? I immediately go back to a dinner. It wasn't dinner I had. It, it was a dinner that, that Socrates had. So let me just set the scene. So in Athens, about 380 years before Christ, something is happening. And what's happening is the Athenian philosophers in the Lyceum, their school, their methodology, which is essentially a, a very calculated, inductive taxonomy of logic. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to, trying to walk you through an argumentation to come to a conclusion. And they're literally trying to sort of like build it up, hmm. right? And they're trying to make sure you agree with every definition, that you agree with every term, because what they're trying to do is not just win an argument, they're trying to essentially inform assent. They're trying to get you not only to say what they're saying is right, but that it's good, beautiful, and true. Wow. Now, at the same time, there are other speakers in Athens, and the politicians are employing these philosophers and speakers that are the sophists. And the sophists are appealing to wisdom. The word wisdom in, in ancient Greece is Sophia. And actually, the Athenians break wisdom down even more, which we can go into. But the sophists say that rhetoric is the art of persuasion and that what their job is to use beautiful words to win people to the position of the person who's paying them. Mm. So they're like the most disingenuous, like, you know, I don't know what, what, what they are, but like, you know, the most disingenuous for hire guns to win people over. Yeah. And the Athenians, the, the you know, Socrates really takes offense at this. Hmm. And Socrates is like, yeah, but that's a cheap shot. You know, if, if the goal is just to win an argument, you could do that by putting, you know, putting a weapon to somebody's head. But isn't it better to actually get a scent? Mm. You know, so in other words, you know, one is to trick a person into a belief. Uh, another model is to you know, force a pe person into a belief. Or another model is to deceive a person into a belief. Mm. None of which really demands a scent because you're asking them to agree with something that's not actually true. Right. Or if it is true, you're not taking the time to bring them to your position. Mm. So anyway, so at this dinner... A foreigner shows up, and the former the foreigner's name is Gorgias, and he's attracted to Athens because oh, this is the book. This is the book named after him. Yeah, this so is ah. it's the dialogue. I just bought it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We were talking about that last Amazing. time we were at lunch. So, is is dialogue possible in in an opulent society? Sort of the, the theme of it, right? So, anyways, the foreigner comes to dinner, and he loves Athens because of the intellectual formation that they have, but he's really drawn to the sophist. And so this debate ensues and he's asking these questions saying, well, isn't it better just to, in the least amount of words, get a person to agree with your position? Hmm. And Socrates and Plato's there recording this dialogue. Socrates is like incredulous saying, but what if, what if what they're bringing them to is not true? What if, see the danger in that? Like, so he essentially says, your use of rhetoric is not an art because your use of rhetoric is being used as a tool for persuasion as opposed to doing the work it should do, which is is to appeal to someone's intellect. And so they get in this debate about what, what is the nature of rhetoric? And I think it's really helpful here. I know we probably you know, didn't think we we're going to go into, you know, 2,500-year-old philosophy from Plato's dialogue, but we're going there. I so, love it. Because really, it. To, to get a handle on it, I think it's, it's really important. So, you know, Gorgias says this. He says he likes the sophists for two reasons. He thinks they're effective, one, at conveying their, their position and, and winning people over for it. And he loves the fact that they appeal to pathos, that they constantly appeal to emotion. Mm -hmm. And so they those dialogue, what's the role of emotion in, 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 a, in a debate or in an argument? And you know, Socrates, again, goes back and says, no, look, it's not a matter of, of, of just appealing toward their, to their character, or ethics, ethos, 
or their emotion pathos. But those things must align with the logos. It must align with what's actually good, beautiful, and true. So he makes this audacious claim, simply this, that at the end of the day, you're not trying to win an argument. At the end of the day, you're not sparring over an idea, right? Which is what the sophists do, right? They would like, and we do this in modern debate, right? We take a position whether you agree with it or not, and you try to defend it. He says, no, no, no. What, what authentic rhetoric is, you're not trying to win an argument, is you're trying to gain a person to your side. That's right. You're, 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 think of it that way. Like, you know, I want more than anything else, if we disagree, is not only for us to come to some agreement, but for us to enter into a friendship so that you can understand my position. And, and if I've arrived at the truth, then help you to, you know, help accompany you to arrive at that truth. This has often been my difficulty in the work of evangelization, because you do have a lot of people out there who are pretty hyper focused on apologetics, for example, yep. right? And so I think there's a lot of people out there, you know, you see this in the church and any kind of movement towards evangelization, which is a desire to bring people mm-hmm. into the church. You see it in politics and mm-hmm. any move in a party towards bringing people into the fold, even if that's just to capture their vote in November. There is this constant, ah, I'd almost call it disconnect between mm-hmm. beauty and truth, or even just like truth and the, the person's humanity before you. you yeah, know? And that's really key. I mean, I think, you know, if, if, especially with our family who we have a different relationship with than say a stranger on the street, you know, hopefully this conversation is going to be not a one-time thing, right? right. And if we, if we approach it like we need to win an argument, and maybe sometimes we do, maybe, soon, maybe there's, you know, a reason to put a young nephew in their place. Fine, I get it. But what we're really trying to do at the end of the day is, is to, to speak about truth in such a way that garnishes, that earns assent. Right. And, and so if that's our way of thinking of it, then we must know what we believe. So like, that's right. You know, so, so essentially when I tell people, how do you discuss politics and faith? in the family, or how do you discuss politics and faith with anyone, even with the person on the street, right? It really starts to know where you stand and to be really honest about where you stand. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know where you stand, then, then admit that. Don't be squishy about it. Just don't, admit yeah, it. Yeah, just admit, hey, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sort of still thinking one way or the other, but I'm leaning towards this way and here's why. Fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're really going to go toe to toe and you really want to win somebody to your side, especially on an issue of, 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 you know, of substance, right? Something really important, like in an election year, you have to know where you stand and you have to know what the essentials are, what the boundaries. Mm. So for instance, what are the positions that you hold, say maybe politically, that are most essential to, to what you believe? Mm. And what are the things that are secondary that are important but not essential? What are the things that are tertiary? So I'll give you some examples. Let's say there was a candidate that was really awesome. And I'll use I'll use fake candidates for all this, you know, because we don't know where we're gonna be in September. It might be illegal to talk about us. <laughs> Say there's a candidate that's really, really good. We don't have a nonprofit status to lose. We're good. Oh, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Now, if, you know, <laughs> if, uh, if there's a candidate that's really, really good about their selection of food, I mean, where they're just like, they, they kill it. Like, like McDonald's three times a day. No, like, I mean, like they, they, when they, when they bring people to the Rose Garden, it's like amazing. <laughs> right. And, and that's, that's awesome. But that's probably tertiary. That's probably like pretty down, you know, far down the path. Why? Because one, that, that, that might speak to their character, their interests, but that's not really the job of, you know, being an elected office one out. So you really have to define your essentials, your secondaries and your tertiaries and really have that clear in your head. So one, to know where you stand. If you're going to enter into any debate or argument and try to win a person, you know, in friendship to assent to the truth that you're articulating, you have to know what it is. Mm-hmm. So you have to have done your own homework. You have to have thought deeply about it. And keep it focused on those essentials then. 
you know, it's it's the secondaries that we can we can have a lot of common ground. It's mm-hmm. the tertiaries we can have a lot of common ground. But it's the essentials that those are our swords we're willing to to fall on. And just so I'm clear on this, sophistry is, is always manipulative. Is that right? Yeah. So at least from a philosophical perspective, right? Uh-huh. The sophists themselves didn't have a position other than that we can use rhetoric to persuade people to our position. Right. So it was it was the craft of using words to trick people into taking your position. Yeah. As opposed to using words to defend and articulate truth. And to do it in a beautiful, convincing way. Yep. So like you said, rhetoric is only true art when it leads to truth. Yeah, it's, it's interesting know? actually in, in, this, in this dialogue, in this debate at this dinner, you know, it's so great that Plato was there and sort of he was able to write it, right? So we can hear this sort of interesting you know, conversation unfolding. But they don't even go so far as to say that rhetoric properly understood is, is really not like an art because it doesn't appeal in the same way that, that certain things do to like a craft. Right. But rhetoric only builds upon logic, you know, dialectic and, and grammar. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, rhetoric is is dependent upon these other foundational things. Mm-hmm. And so rhetoric is is if if it's anything, it's it's the craft of of conveying what's true. You know, it's, it's taking what's already true, what you already know, and figuring out a way for me to express and help you understand it. And it sounds like what you're saying is the point is to, is to master that craft first and foremost for the essentials. Yep. And then towards the secondaries and tertiaries from there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you should be able to, you, really what it comes down to is that what are the principles that you're willing to die for? What are yeah. the principles that you're willing to really push on and, and not let the secondaries or the tertiaries distract you? Mm-hmm. Right, I, I'm, it's not worth me, you know, getting in an argument with my brother about you know what topping on pizza is best because that's right. relatively inconsequential in our life. Yeah, and 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 God bless us if everything else is in order in our life, that that can be the one thing we need to argue. That'd be great. That'd be great, but it's not. So let's focus on the essentials. So when it comes to politics, then every person should have the essentials that they're that they're most important to them. Right, like basic litmus tests, like. Do they have a healthy understanding of of the the dignity of life? Right? This would be one that the, that the church and the, you know both Catholic and evangelicals and others really hold up. Right. I was going to say, as a theologian, from your perspective, mm-hmm. from the church's perspective, what are those principles we should be willing to die for? What are the essentials in a political approach or a political philosophy? Yeah. So I mean, I think, and it's specific to our democracy too. So one would be that they have a an appropriate and consistent ethic of life. Right. So from from. You know, and you can see why this would be important because this, this forms in how they understand who the human person is. So another way to say it is that they would have an adequate human anthropology. Mm. Right? They would understand the human person. The second one would be that they understand their particular role. Right? This is a, a matter of, of how they frame their job. Mm-hmm. But they understand their role in the role of the government. If they're going to be in a position, they ought to know what that position is. And so some of the ways that we, we describe this would be rights and responsibilities. Mm. Right, where they know the limits and, and the, the responsibilities of their job and what our responsibilities are as a citizen. And as you sort of go down the line, there are others. You know, the church has proposed somewhat controversially in the U.S. are these five non-negotiables. And it's interesting because I think what people get upset about is sort of is, is the words used, that non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. I, I happen to like it. I think it's great. Here, here's the five things that are absolutely essential for every human person, regardless of faith, for full human flourishing. And it ends up, it is about a dignity of life, a right to work, Mm. an appropriate opportunity to serve the poor and the vulnerable, the opportunity that, to, that, that freedom is not licensed, right? And that certain freedoms are inalienable and must be protected at all costs, mm. right? And our constitution lays it out. Our Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So those would be the essentials. Now, as a theologian, as a, as a person of faith, I would add some other ones on there. I would add the priority of the family, 
right? That we, any, any politician whose vision is that society is made up of a collection of individuals is dead wrong mm. because we are actually not a society of individuals. We don't create ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't come out of, you know, a lab. We don't fly out of, you know, heaven or come out of the waters of the sea, right? We are, the, the vital self society is a family. Mm. I always go back and it's funny when I, when I think about this as an essential, I think about actually Confucius. So going all the way back to ancient China, Confucius was the warden in the local prison in Song, in the, in the province of Song. And his entire sort of philosophical thinking that would later be incorporated into the religiosity of, of ancient China. Confucius, his entire reform program as a warden was to focus on the families. And he actually wrote about that. Mm. He said that if you just treat the people who are incarcerated as individuals who need to be rehabilitated without recognizing that they're individuals that come from a family. So what he would do is he would actually, his entire system of, 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 of sort of rehabilitation, his entire welfare system was never focused on individuals. It was focused on families. Mm. So we have this sort of interesting ancient examples of this that, that beautifully articulate the reality that the vital self study is not the individual. The government does not exist to support the individual right. It's, it's right. actually not true. The government exists to protect the rights of individuals but they do that through supporting family. This was like forever ago, but you remember Rick Santorum? Oh yeah, of course. He put out a book called It Takes a Family. And it was a bit of a response to Hillary Clinton's book, It Takes a Village. Right. I think her point was, you know, and, and the government does have a responsibility mm-hmm. to the individual citizen. And he would say, well, actually the government has a responsibility to the family right. to, to create a society in which the family can thrive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a huge, huge distinction. It's also one I hear from, I don't, I never know how to pronounce this guy's last name. Ross Douthit. He's a big- uh, oh, Douthit? Yeah, I, I, say, say, I say Douthit. Douthit. Douthit or Douthat. Perfect. But we'll, we'll he's always coming back to the family, the yeah. family, the family. And that's a paradigm shift for me. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not something you hear anybody talking about who's got a microphone very often. Well, you, you, know? Know, you know who does talk about it, which is interesting, is, is behavioral psychologists. Interesting. And cultural anthropologists, mm. which is really interesting. If you actually just read the research about like people who study wolves and everything, they're all about the family. Mm. You want to address issues of population and disease in the North American timber wolf? You have to look at packs and families. Mm. You want to look at uh, behavioral development of chimpanzees? You look at the family. I mean, it's just, you know, this is for non-human things. How much more for for humans? You know, mm-hmm. and so you know, the the point being is that everywhere else we look, we come to the reality that our biology determines something about who, who we are, mm. and th- that's the case here. We come out of the family. Yeah. You know, our our first educators are our family. Our our, our first experience of love and forgiveness is in the family, e- e- either in the affirmative or the negative. Mm. You know, even in our family's brokenness, right? Which is really hard for a lot of people, I know. But, so, I mean, I think that would be one of the other non-negotiables. So, if you're going to argue with your family about politics, and please do, every family needs to get better at this. See, you know, I love it because, you know, on my Italian side of the family, we, we, we always get into stuff no matter what. We can't help it, right? We will either fight about not eating enough raviolis or about who the next president's going to be. It's going to happen no matter what because we're, we're passionate. You know, we're, we're all a bunch of sanguines. So the challenge is, is to enter into that conversation with a little bit more grace. Yeah. So one, know where you stand, know what the essentials are, the things that are most important to you and, and really form yourself on them. Are those the most important things? Mm. It's huge. You know, and so I'll give you an example real quick. Here's how you can test it. Is the thing that's most important to you things that are most necessary for full human flourishing? 
Like, it, for instance, if, if it's most important to you that we have a healthy economy, okay, that's very important, but is that the thing that's most necessary for man? And, and chances are you'll dive a little deeper. You'll say, oh, what I mean by healthy economy is free access to market for all people. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Mm. You know what I mean? So like, really take the time to distill those things, know where you stand. By the way, it seems very much like right now you've got two ends of a spectrum that's either fighting for the economy or fighting for health, you know, at least in the name of economics and in the name of medicine, there's a lot of vitriol, anger, and, you know, mud flinging happening right now. As if those are the only options, Exactly. Right? Yeah. And as if there can actually be a dialogue between those two realities. And I'd say, you know, one of the things I've been learning in a... Uh, a social teaching class with my master's in theology that I'm almost done with is that actually for a society to really pursue the common good, it cannot forget the metaphysical. Yeah. That one of the key things of, of a healthy society is reminding all of us essentially of our eternal destiny. And yeah. that's something that no one's talking about these days. So what, what are we for, right? It comes back to what does it mean to be humans? So I think, you know, before you engage these arguments, know, know what the essentials, know what the secondaries, know what the tertiaries, know the things that matter most. Be clear about what's opinion, sort of opinion would be what you think and sort of what you know to be true. But be really clear. And, and we, have to, we have to take that because we don't want to lose an argument. We don't want to, and this is one of the points that Socrates is making. You don't want to make a false claim that's inconsequential that now discredits your entire argument. That's right. All right, so just be really honest. You know, and, and, and be able to articulate that. And, and so if you say you know something, you better darn well know it. Yeah. And it's okay to say something that you don't know as long as you preface it. That, you know, every, for instance, like there's some things that we just can't possibly know. Like, you know, like what's the best prudential approach to, you know, economic matters of international trade with China at this given moment? That, that's probably one or two people in the world know prudentially what that should look like, right? But there's, I can have an opinion on it. You can have an opinion on it. So let's be honest about that. We say, hey, you know, you know, on this issue, here's what I'm thinking right now. Speaking of which, what do you think about TikTok? Should we? Uh, yes, right. Should we raise the ban or not? I don't, I don't know. know. It's this is this is <laughs> this going to be an existential question pretty soon. <laughs> um, you know, and then I say you know, as you go down this list too. So you know, prepare yourself. Know where you stand. Know what the essentials are. Be clear about what what you're still formulating and what you know to be true. What you've actually done your research on, and then really be clear about the category. So there there are matters that are that are of material reality, right? These are like stats and numbers and, and things that are, are binary. They either are or they are not, mm -hmm. right? And so you, you have to you have to know that stuff. And this again, it's not about being an expert. It's about being honest with how well your position is thought out because you're inviting somebody to leave their position behind and you're going to accompany them towards yours. That's right. Accompaniment. That's and, huge. And if, if you're going to accompany them towards a false place, you are now responsible. And this is this is actually happening at this dinner, right? Mm. You know, Socrates is saying, well, you know, our position is that we want to know the truth and bring people other to the truth because we recognize that the sacred act and sharing logos and sharing logic and bringing people to what's true, beautiful, and good, both for for the the practical and the eternal consequence of it. Yeah. And so, know your category. You know whether this is a matter of material reality, sort of binary, whether it's a matter of prudential judgment. You know, there's a lot. I mean, I would say, in my experience, most of the arguments have been really about matters to prudential judgment. In other words, you're arguing about things that honestly sort of depend upon the situation and the individual. Mm. And what happens there is you've probably gotten off the essentials. Mm. So for instance, an example would be, it is essential that every human person have the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. But in that third category, even, even in any of the categories, you know, the, the right to life doesn't mean that you have to spend every resource to keep a person alive 
for eternity. That 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 you have to the goal should be for people to live to two hundred fifty years. That that's the that that's not what it says. That's that's a matter of prudential judgment. Mm-hmm. The principle doesn't change, right? But the matter of prudential judgment in terms of how you extend that principle and apply it, that can. And so I think a lot of times to really be clear of of, of the matters of prudential judgment versus those those matters of material reality. I love it. And and if you if you enter into you know if in some ways, I can tell when you do this and do this well, it can come more naturally. And it really just comes down to this, sort of knowing your stuff and, and knowing the person and trying to explain to them how you came to your conclusion. Mm. And then the last one you just mentioned about matters of metaphysics. So matters of metaphysics are, are the things that are most consequential and they're the hardest things to argue for. And they're the hardest things to argue for because we live in a very empirical world. We live in a world that likes to think it makes decisions based off of the material reality and based off of good exercise of prudence. But the truth is we actually very often more make decisions based on metaphysics. Mm. So I just want to read a quote from Newman, right? Because Newman's my man. I had an opportunity to teach nine schools, walk them through two days of, of, of what classical education is. It was amazing. So from Peru, Chile, or Chile, and Colombia, and Ecuador, and we had one other country there from Latin America with some students from, from Mexico as well. But anyways, we, we, we walked through this. And one of the things I was sharing with them was about, you know, about how, how well Newman understood this. And so I just want to read this quote. He says, and this is in Grammar of Ascent and, and prior to that in the Tamworth reading room. He said, the heart is commonly reached not through the reason, but through the imagination. And let's just test that real quick, right? So if, if the mind is reached through reason, what, what moves what we know to how we live, right? That, that sort of moves what we know down to the heart, which is, which is the idea, right? That our heart and mind would be united and integrated. Mm. Not that our emotions would overwhelm our reason and not that our reason would 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 suppress our emotions, right? And we see that even now in, in some of these debates on on justice equality. Mm. You know, we 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 want equality. We 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 demand it. It's 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 enshrined in our constitution and it's written into our human DNA. But if you're just guided by your emotion and reaction to to the victimhood of others, your 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 reason's gonna be muted out. Yeah. And then you have others that are all reason. And they don't actually allow their emotions to, to, to demand the action that's warranted in the situation. You need mm-hmm. both. So Newman continues. So the heart is reached not through reason, but through the imagination by means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events, by history, by descriptions, persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. Many will live and die upon a dogma. No man will be a martyr for a conclusion. Right, the idea being that that when we talk about the most important things, we are inviting somebody to understand where we are in terms of our heart and mind. Mm-hmm. Right? We, it's it's it is deeply immense. This is why so many people just scream at each other because there's no vulnerability there. Right? You don't have to do any of the work. You just can say, hey, "Here's my position. Take it or leave it." Which is a deeply non-human way of approaching it. Mm-hmm. Even if your position is true and theirs is wrong, just to shout your position. And then walk away without any explanation. I mean, think of Thomas Aquinas in the greatest theological masterpiece of, of history, right? You know, the, the Summa, he assumes at the very beginning that the other person's argument is worthy of inquiry. And so he says, you say this and you object to my position this way. Well, here's how I respond. 
And then he takes those two and he, you know, syllogistically goes through and then comes to a conclusion. And often articulates their position better than they could have in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he recognizes the dignity of the other person. Mm-hmm. And so this idea then to sort of, you know, know where you stand, you know, know what's most important to you, the essentials, be clear about what you know and what you're still forming, and then really sort of know the categories. And the idea is to be able to defend one's position by both appealing to material reality, right? Both appealing to, you know, prudential judgment, you know, this would be like, isn't it better if sort of statements? Mm-hmm. And then also recognize metaphysics that we're, we're not just made for purely economic ends or, or ends of consumption, though those are important. We're made for eternal ends, mm. you know? So, you know, when this happens, when people are able to do this, and they can do it in a way that respects <laughs> their audience. You know, with families, we have to be really careful. And, and Paul, you know, St. Paul says this in his letters. Uh, he reminds us that the fourth commandment is the only command with a promise, that if you respect your parents, all will go well with you. Right? All the other commandments are you just do it, or if you don't, you're you're out type mm-hmm. thing. This one actually has a, a covenantal promise. And the reason is, is because family is so important. And so th- this idea of if you're doing it with a family or a friend, to have the utmost respect and care, right? That you would never violate your your relationship. Like mm-hmm. my position as a son, I would debate my dad all the time. And but my position as a son at the end of the day is, is not to embarrass, not to defame not to curse or be angry with my father, right? Like that's 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 not becoming of a son. And it's certainly not gonna win him to my position, mm. but, it, but it might be with my right to raise my voice or point out a flaw in his argument or, or invite more time to discuss it. So I think it'll be critically important as we enter in and come on the other side of this election to have more of these conversations and just not be afraid to enter into it. And just and just be ready to take some wounds. I mean, you're right, like where people might their preference might be just to scream at you that you're wrong and yeah. and judgmental. Or the one that that's thrown around so often right now is it seems that if you have any objective position that is in discord with the person across from you, you are suddenly branded a bigot. Yeah. And people I don't think realize like what the etymology of that word is, but like, you know, actually by claiming somebody's a bigot is actually a bigoted position very often, right? <laughs> to, to be a bigot is to, is to is to make a conclusion outside of the evidence. Mm. Right? And so, and to do it in a, in a, in a way that's uh, defaming to the character of the other person. So I think we just need to be ready to enter into it. And, and if we do this, I can tell you, if we do this well, in my experience, what happens is if people see this sort of staid, steady, honest engagement, they will want to talk with you more mm-hmm. because people have so few places they can actually bang these ideas around. Right. I mean, the way we come to conclusions is not by watching, you know, really cheaply, horribly done, you know, ad campaign commercials. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how your position is on this, Jimmy, but I, I have not seen any any recent campaign ads that we would qualify as beautiful or even even crafted in such a way as to try to tell a narrative. I mean, yeah. they're just like, I mean, it's really bizarre. With all the technology we have, and we're able to do this with a, with a relatively good camera, with amazing microphones, you know, our production quality is pretty good. And there's, they're not even trying. They're just, and, and they've got millions. And, they got, and they're just screaming at each other, right? Yeah. Or they're just trying to appeal to emotion. You know? Here's what I'm thinking. So we've got to, unfortunately, wrap up this conversation. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm thinking you can be the pregame for the next presidential debate. And what I mean by pregame is we need to get you in the back room. Let's do it. Talking to our presidential candidates and getting them thinking along these lines. That'd be great. And then, frankly, all of America, if we were willing with grace and courage to enter into dialogue, to even take on the responsibility of accompaniment. That's, yeah. the, that's the reality. These kind of conversations take time 
And they actually make so much fewer demands on you than the constant barraging and the constant, you're wrong and you're a bigot and my way is the only way. That's exhausting and it's very unproductive. This is actually really, it's it's enjoyable. It's, it's life-giving. It's life-giving. And that's what the world and our, our country certainly needs more of right now. So thanks for the stark reminder, yes. the encouragement. I've been taking notes the entire way through and I hope everybody at home has been as well. And we'll do this again in only a few more weeks and we'll probably be inching ever closer to the election. I want to see Amazon sold out of the gorgeous tomorrow. <laughs> that's what I want to see. Yeah. I, I claimed my first copy a few Excellent. weeks ago. Everybody else get on. How do you spell it, by the way? It's so, a hard one. Yeah, G-O-R-G-I-A-S. There it is. Yeah. Thank you so much. Ryan will See you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. It's only confusion. We can talk all night and lighten up our hearts as long as we're moving. Then we are ready to win better than the stars. So we don't need a rush, babe. Let's take our time. Talk about the hard parts on green countrysides. And we can both discover to find I'll be and I will be a navigator driving in the dark and I will hold your hand if we lose touch of where we are and creep you even tighter when it's pulling us apart let me be your car driving through the dark through the dark through the dark Driving through the dark, through the dark, through the dark Driving through the dark, through the dark, through the dark Driving through the dark Oh, pretty good, right? I mean, Dr. Ryan Hanning knows what he's talking about. This is a guy who definitely flies at like 30,000 feet most days. I don't know quite how he does it, but he also keeps his feet firmly planted on the ground. This guy's raising a beautiful family. This guy is, is totally engaged in high level intellectual work without you know, becoming, ah, what's the word? Like a pure academic, right? Someone who lives in the clouds, like he gets it. He's rolling up his sleeves every day and inspiring certainly me, challenging me, convicting me to not give up, right? To to live in the tension, to chase after the truth, but to do it with great love, with great joy, even as broken, as crazy, and even as weird as society seems to be so often of the time. Um, this is a great way to move forward for all of us. And especially in, you know, these final two months leading up to a presidential election here in America, such a, a unity of truth and charity is needed in our land and across our families and certainly in our day-to-day conversations and debates about what really matters, the true, the good, and the beautiful and the best way forward for this country and for the world. So another great conversation, another great podcast with Dr. Ryan Hanning. By the way, I just wanna go ahead and and make sure all of you are subscribed, okay? Whether you listen to your podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, it don't matter. With all of those, you can follow, you can subscribe, you can leave comments. You have no idea how much that helps us in getting the word out and even just boosting our engagement, showing up more and more in people's feeds and really spreading the word. Our podcast has really grown tremendously over these last three years, but we've never spent a dime on marketing it, all right? The only way that people find out about the Love Good Podcast is 
you. All right, so make sure you're following us, downloading every episode as soon as it goes live on Tuesdays, leaving us reviews, and certainly sharing your favorite episodes all over social media, even texting it out to family and friends. It goes a long way. You guys are amazing. Hope you're having a beautiful, beautiful week. We'll see you next time around with Ryan Stevenson, another one of these incredible singer-songwriters here in Nashville. He's been making music for years and uh, another award winner. He's kind of in the Josh Wilson category, big name and Christian music and just a solid dude. Cannot wait to sit down with him in person here in the Love Good Podcast in Nashville. You guys are amazing. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. Peace. Massive thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. If you like this week's episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, share it on social media, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and then join us on the front lines of building a better culture by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Our patrons get all kinds of incredible exclusive content, such as a weekly long-form video of the podcast, a monthly live stream house concert with our artists, and a seasonal package that will raise your standard for music, books, and art forever. Thanks again for tuning in. It's an honor to accompany you as you change the world.